0: I'm Melinda Hamelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Dr. Todd Cooperman. He is president and founder and editor in chief at ConsumerLab.com. Dr. Cooperman is a nationally recognized and respected researcher, writer, and speaker on consumer healthcare issues. He is a graduate of the Boston University School of Medicine. Recognizing a lack of quality standards and oversight in the U.S. dietary supplement industry, Dr. Cooperman founded consumerlab.com in 1999, where he guided it to become the leading independent evaluator of dietary supplements and nutritional products. He's joining us today to speak about the new concerning reports about lead and cadmium in chocolate. He's going to provide us with a new update on some powdered fruit and vegetable supplements, and we'll also touch on immune system protection in light of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Cooperman.
1: Hi, Melinda. It's really great to be back on. Thank you for having me.
0: Always. Now, I don't know if there's any time of year when chocolate isn't in season, maybe (laughs) bathing suit season but we eat a lot of it. And in preparation for this interview, I went to some market data and I looked to see that the average American eats about 20 pounds of chocolate per year or about three chocolate bars per week. And your recent report, as well as a sister report that Consumer Reports did, have both raised red flags about chocolate safety. What should we be most concerned about when we hear reports about chocolate being contaminated with cadmium and arsenic?
1: So cadmium definitely occurs in chocolate, and you'll find more of it in dark chocolate. And arsenic, not so much a problem, but lead is a problem as well, a lesser problem. So we at Consumer Lab have been buying dark chocolates. And the reason why we focus on dark chocolate and not milk chocolate is we're focused on supplements and health products that have a health benefit. And there are there's lots of evidence that there's some benefit from dark chocolate, from the cocoa flavanols that you find in them, as well as in cocoa powders. So we also test cocoa powders, and then we test cocoa supplements. This is all part of a big cocoa review that we have on Consumer Lab. So we've been testing these for several years and have been reporting on problems that we've been finding. And it just coincidentally turned out that Consumer Reports, which isn't far from us geographically, just a few miles away. Put out a report just three days after we put out our latest report, and interestingly, chose many of the same products that we've tested and found very similar results. But the way that they presented the information, and it was great that they put it out, and I think their, their results are accurate, but I think that the way it was presented might have concerned adults more than necessary about some of the lead being found in, in some of the dark chocolates. So, first, really, the uh, cadmium, which is a kidney toxin and a a potential carcinogen. That's really the the biggest problem with many dark chocolates, but the amounts really vary across the products. And some have amounts that exceed limits, not only for children, but for adults established in Canada. And then some also have small amounts of lead. And, And we can talk about specific products a little bit, if you'd like, as well. What Consumer Reports did is they also looked at cadmium and lead, but the cutoff that they used in their reporting for lead is based on a risk of reproductive harm. So women who are pregnant or children, that's the limit that they were looking at with lead. They say no amount of lead is safe and you want to avoid lead as much as possible, but it's really in most foods that we eat, that are going to have very small amounts of lead. And the limit that they chose, which was half a microgram per day, is not really of concern to adults other than pregnant women. So I think there's more benefit than harm from chocolates that have even lead at that level if they have you a know, significant amount of cocoa flavanols. Consumer reports didn't look at the flavanols, didn't look at the beneficial side of chocolate, just at the potential harm. And again, that's fine. It, it brought attention to this issue. But I think our report is more balanced in terms of understanding the risks and benefits of chocolate, especially dark chocolate.
0: Right. Well, and I like your report and your review also because you include cadmium, lead, and arsenic. So those three, as well as the beneficial Flavanol. Now, I do want to bring forth those brands that really need to change their production methods. And I have a bar of Alter Eco, dark blackout, 85% cocoa, thinking I'm going to get the most Flavanols with this super dark chocolate. I love the way they taste. They are fairly traded, which is an issue that I care about. And they're also organic. And yet, this bar in particular was found to be not approved because of its cadmium levels. How does cadmium get into chocolate?
1: So first, say that you did everything right, <laughs> as you pointed out. You know, you tried to buy the best product, best for workers around the world, for you. You know, and organic, often has benefits, lower pesticides. Unfortunately, organic products, we've been testing products for over 20 years, they don't have lower amounts of heavy metals. They tend to have higher amounts for some reason than products that are not listed as being organic. So it's a weird thing with organic supplements and organic foods. The way that cadmium gets in is the cocoa plant actually absorbs heavy metals that are in the ground. And so if there's cadmium or lead in the ground, and it could be due to volcanic sources of these metals that are in the ground, it's not from necessarily contamination, certainly of any intentional sort, or may or may not even relate to contamination during processing. So it's really selecting cocoa from regions that are of lower cadmium level, and also if there are other beneficial metals in the soil, I believe the same mechanism is used by the plants to absorb metals. If there's a higher amount of so you know, iron or something else in the soil, that may reduce the uptake of the heavy metals like cadmium. So it's coming from the environment, from the soil in which it's being grown. It really is a problem with cocoa, cocoa powders. We've been reporting on problems with cocoa powders for years, and it really hasn't gotten much attention. But Limits have been set on cadmium in Canada, in Europe, but there's no limit in the U.S. And in terms of the U.S., the federal government, in terms of lead, does have a limit, which they establish really for children who eat candy, especially chocolate. And that limit is 0.1 micrograms per gram. None of the products that we tested exceeded the federal limit for lead, which again is why I think the Consumer Reports presentation of their data may lead people to think that these products are are really more dangerous than they might think. And there was even a settlement in California, which is the only state to have a limit on cadmium and lead in products. And that was brought by uh, the chocolate companies. And and they basically agreed that the limit was not practical for dark chocolates. And they actually allow a, a higher amount of lead in dark chocolate now in California than the limit that Consumer Reports used in their reporting. So, again, if you're a kid or a woman who might be getting pregnant or pregnant, I would definitely limit your intake of dark chocolates and cocoa. If you have it once or twice a week, it's fine. These limits are really based on daily exposure over a number of years. So if you eat that dark chocolate occasionally, I really wouldn't be worried about it.
0: okay. I thought it was interesting how these contaminants get into foods, and the lead contamination appeared to come from the processing methods, so mm-hmm. It's good to know that there are places that are paying attention. I know California does have much better safety standards with regard to many toxicants in the food system than the rest of the country. So I was also interested to look at the EU because they do have a limit on cadmium, whereas you say the U.S. has none. So I think that chocolate manufacturers could do more. Would you agree?
1: Yes, they can. They definitely can. And we pointed this out. In the past, you know, like I think Hershey's could be doing a better job, Alter Eco. We found that Giardelli in general seems to be doing a better job keeping these levels lower, letting cadmium. And we've looked at a lot of other brands in our report as well. But interesting, Trader Joe's is kind of a mixed bag. And we always find that with Trader Joe's. And I think it's because they're using many different private label manufacturers to make their products. So one company might be making one black chocolate for them, another one making another black chocolate. And so some of their products have been terrible and some have been very good. So it's kind of a mixed bag with them.
0: Well, let me bring up another brand because I really want our listeners to avoid those that have the worst record. And of course, the Alter Eco Deep Dark Blackout. And I'm going to contact the manufacturer and just let them know that I love your chocolate, but I can't eat it anymore because I really don't want to get high levels of cadmium in my diet and certainly not in children. Green and Black's Organic Dark Chocolate, again, that 85% cocoa, also fails with regard to cadmium. I'm trying to get the most flavanols in my diet. And so, of course, I'm looking for the highest level of cocoa. And I'm going to have to give that one up too. You've got another one, Lint, Excellent Supreme Dark, 90% cocoa. Cadmium also is a problem there. So I think it's important for consumers to visit your website and learn about which chocolates are not approved. The other one that I wanted to bring forth is another one that I love. I've even visited the factory in Seattle, Theo Chocolate, the 70% Theo Sea Salt Dark Chocolate, not approved. Again, a problem with cadmium. I am going to switch over to Giordelli, I wish that they had a fairly traded and organic product, because that seems to be an area where consumers are increasingly more interested. I do want to call out some of the cocoa powders, because those two are problematic. And Trader Joe's did a poor job there.
1: You also have to be careful, because some of the issues that are reported have to do with the serving size. So if, if you reduce your serving, it, it may not be so as bad. So it's all a matter of the dose here. And just another thing I wanted to point out is on the beneficial side, on the flavanol side, you can't rely on the percentage, a 90% product. You know, you mentioned lint is probably an excellent example there. What was it, a 90% lint, 90% cocoa or cacao, it's really interchangeable. Doesn't really mean it has more flavanols than a a 70% product or 72% product sometimes. And that's because of the way that companies come up with that number. It includes the amount of cocoa butter that's in a product which has no flavanols that's kind of the white part you know white chocolates made with cocoa butter and so if there's a lot of cocoa butter in a product which will make it you know a little more fatty maybe more tasty it will actually it also will have a lower amount of flavanols also if a product is dutched or alkalized which may gives it a darker color and a smoother flavor that reduces flavanols so just to compare say the lint which was a 90% cocoa product, we only found 147 milligrams of flavanols in that product. But compare that to like 100% like Montezuma's dark chocolate, there's a slightly higher cocoa percentage that had 350 milligrams of flavanols in a bar. So don't rely on those percentages. You really, unfortunately, you really have to test these products to see the flavanol content.
0: And that's what I love about your report is it does give us an opportunity to look beyond that percentage and really focus on the Flavanol level. Dr. Cooperman, we are at the halfway mark. So I need to take a break. Remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into FoodSleuth Radio. We're speaking with Dr. Todd Cooperman, who is president at ConsumerLab.com. He's got a brand new report out on chocolates with regard to their beneficial Flavanol content, cadmium, lead, and arsenic. So along with the good, we also get some bad, and we want to make sure that we're choosing the safest and most beneficial products for our families. I promised our listeners that we would dive into two other topics today. One recent report that you did on fruit and vegetable powder supplements, and the other discussing how do we boost our immune system with regard to all kinds of respiratory illnesses that are going around as well as the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Now you do many reviews and I so appreciate them because dietary supplements are not regulated the way food is in our country. Mm -hmm. And you recently looked at fruit and vegetable powders and I have had a bone to pick about these for decades because how do you compare eating whole food to dehydrating a food, making it a powder and sticking it in a capsule and then putting it in a plastic container and charging a lot for it. It Makes sense of this for me.
1: Yeah, well, your instincts are completely right. So we have over 90,000 subscribers. And they're constantly asking us, could you test this or that? And I guess sometimes it's driven by what's being promoted on uh, infomercials even. So people began asking us about balance of nature, which makes a a fruits and a veggies, two different capsules sold together. And then there are many others. There's Root 2, 42 Fruits and Veggies, Juice Plus. There are a lot of other fruits and veggies products. And some of these are being promoted as, as a substitute for eating fruits and veggies or gives you you know, all that you'd get from eating fruits and vegetables. And in an adult, which you know better than I, being a dietitian, an adult needs about five servings a day of fruits and vegetables, which comes out to about 500 grams of fresh fruits and vegetables. Those fruits and vegetables are about 90% water. So if you were to dry them into a powder, which is what's used in most of these products, that would give you 50 grams of powder. And that would be fine. And you'd have all the fiber and vitamins and minerals in there that you'd get from fresh fruits and vegetables. The amount of powder that's actually in a daily serving of these products is anywhere from about two to 10 grams of powder. So there's at best, if you had something with 10, which would be more like a scoop of some kind of powder, you might get one fifth of the fruits and vegetables that you'd want to eat per day, one fifth. At the lower end, It's a fifth of that fifth. It's only two out of 50. So there's no way at all that you're going to be able to get all your fruits and vegetables or even probably close to like one fifth of it from a daily serving, a recommended daily serving, which could be several capsules or a scoop of these products. Oh, and I should mention in terms of fiber, it's even worse. You know, you need about 20 up to 30 grams of fiber per day. Some of these supplements have no fiber. Some have one gram, two grams per serving among the ones that we looked at. So how are you going to get up to 20 to 30 grams of fiber that you'd expect from fruits and vegetables from taking a capsule that gives you maybe one or two grams? So do not rely on these products for that. On the positive side, we did not find any concerning levels of lead, cadmium, mercury, we, uh, arsenic. Uh, we included mercury because some of these include algae products like spirulina or chlorella. So we look for mercury in them as well. So that's the scoop on, on fruits and veggie powders and pills.
0: I'm really interested about their marketing because I actually know dietitians who promote juice plus, and I've never seen an independent review of these products. I know people who swear by them. I think there's great value in the placebo effect. You know if you tell somebody it's going to make you feel better, it will just because you've set your mind to that. But I'm very concerned about people who have illnesses. Economics are a big issue. These are expensive products. And if we want to truly boost our immunity and get anti-inflammatory benefits and all of the wonderful things that we can from fruits and vegetables, we're just not going to get them from these supplements. And when we talk about boosting the immune system, I think it's important to go back to that point about fiber that you made. Over the years, I think what I've learned, if nothing else, has been the power of the microbiome and how critically important fiber is to protecting the microbes in our gut and how those microbes benefit our immune system, as well as mental health, physical health all around. So your point about fiber missing from these supplements is very important. The fact that they're expensive and really don't do the good that a wholesome diet will bring it's a take home message for me. Is there anything else you want to mention about these?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think juice plus is a very good example. I mean, we also tested their gummies, which when you look at a product, you should always look at the list of ingredients because the list needs to go in order of what's in there at, at the highest weight first. Right. So so you look at a juice plus gummy, what's the first thing on there? It's I think tapioca syrup. You know, what's the second thing or third thing is like some type of sugar. And then at the end it's like vegetable powder or fruit powder. And so, you know, you're really getting a lot more syrup and sugar from these products than you're going to get fruits and vegetables.
0: Right. So the take home message is don't be fooled, eat more fruits and vegetables. And as you said, a minimum of five servings a day and a minimum of 30 grams of fiber, really, we're better off moving up towards that 50 gram level. And it's easy to do on a plant based diet. Okay, Dr. Cooperman, I want to launch into a discussion on immunity, because there are so many supplements out there that are claiming to protect us from COVID-19 and other upper respiratory viruses. What would you like our listeners to know?
1: We have been very carefully looking at the clinical studies that have come out about every type of supplement for preventing or treating COVID. We have yet to see any good evidence that any supplement is Particularly effective. There was hope that, you know, maybe even vitamin D, which is involved in the immune system would be helpful. And there were some early indications of that, but even that hasn't really shown much of a difference in terms of preventing or treating COVID. So we have an extensive article. It's a free article on our site, all about the different supplements that have been tried, including elderberry and zinc, many others. And the bottom line is you should, you know, make sure that you're not deficient in anything especially the vitamins and minerals like zinc and D. Taking more of it doesn't seem to help. The herbals like elderberry, although this happens all the time, there are laboratory studies suggesting that some herb will block a virus in a test tube, but when they give it to people, most of the time it doesn't really work that way. It doesn't show the benefit that you might have been excited to see from a laboratory experiment. Um, So obviously all the other good things, you know, get good sleep, wear a mask when you're around people who might be infected, distance. So, you know, all the common sense things that we know work, I think are, are much more important than, than supplementing unless you're deficient in something.
0: Right. And in the third paragraph of this report, getting adequate sleep and exercise and eating a healthful diet that includes adequate but not excessive intakes of essential nutrients is really key to staying healthy. And even if we just look at sleep, We know that Americans really struggle with not shorting themselves on sleep, and it's undervalued. I know that you have looked at masks also on ConsumerLab.com. There is a proportion of the population that don't believe that masks are effective, and I think we should talk about that because this is a respiratory virus. It is airborne. What do you want our listeners to know about mask wearing?
1: Yeah, it's a common question. And and I don't know where this kind of rumor has come up that a virus is too small to be caught by a mask. But I think what people don't appreciate is that these masks, so the virus, people say, is about 0.3 microns, and the the distance between fibers in a mask is like 0.9. And that is actually, it's probably true. But the reason why masks work is that, first, it's not just a, a grid work of fibers, it's a mesh of irregularly spaced fibers that are electrostatically charged so that they attract particles as well. So if you imagine like trying to go through a jungle of trees, which is like a, a virus trying to get through a mask, if it were a, like a sentient being and it had eyes and it could see where it was going, it might be able to maneuver around all these fibers. But it's really more like you being blindfolded and trying to, and, and I say, run, I want to see if you can get through this dense forest right now. You know, you're going to hit a tree and you're going to <laughs> get knocked down. And that's why when they test these, using particles that are only 0.3 microns, only the N95s or the KN95s, it means they block 95% of the viruses going through them, with 95% of the particles that are 0.3 microns going through them. So it's a fallacious argument. And I've heard it even from a relative who said to me, oh, masks don't work, things can get through it. It's not true. I think people need to recognize that and that they can't do a clinical study with people wearing masks or not. It's not ethical. But all of the other studies that have looked at populations wearing masks or not masks have all shown benefit from wearing masks. So I think a mask is a lot cheaper for a dollar or so and a lot more effective than trying to take supplements other than just trying to prevent a deficiency.
0: Yeah. I want to bring forth a couple of other points from your exhaustive review of COVID-19 and supplements. You talk about probiotics that goes back to our discussion about the microbiome and keeping our guts healthy with the right bacterial mix. Do you find that probiotics have been helpful in reducing risk of getting COVID-19?
1: No, we have not found any supplement to really help reduce the risk in any kind of significant clinical study. And we've done, as you said, we've, we've been testing probiotics for years really the best evidence for probiotics is when you're taking an antibiotic it may reduce the chance of antibiotic associated diarrhea the probiotics they don't even last when you take them and it's not like when you say oh it's going to repopulate your gut they only last for like a week you know and then they're gone again the only way to really change your gut is by eating foods that have the right fibers and other nutrients that will support a healthy biome in your gut as you said so that's my take on, on probiotics. Although, again, we've tested all kinds of probiotics. We have all best picks and all that for different purposes. But, but for COVID, I, I wouldn't rely on a, a probiotic.
0: All right. Another feature of COVID-19 is smell and taste loss. And you have done some research looking at omega-3 fatty acids. Perhaps they have some benefit for those who have lost smell and taste?
1: That was tried as well, and there were some early research suggesting a potential benefit, but I don't believe that that has panned out either. There's no downside to taking omega 3s unless it, you're taking very large amounts where it can actually have a blood thinning effect. So I think it, it's been tried. There was a little evidence, but I don't think it's really been proven with omega 3s. But again, it's a safe thing to be trying if you want to.
0: Well, it's under the category of it can't hurt unless, uh-huh. as you say, you're taking large amounts. One of the sections in this report is supplements and products unlikely to help with COVID-19 and could be dangerous. And one of them rears its head from time to time, and that has to do with apple cider vinegar. There have been some social media postings recommending gargling with vinegar. That can't be good.
1: Yeah, it, it hasn't been proven to be beneficial, and, and remember, it, it's an acid, it's vinegar.
0: <laughs> right.
1: So when you're using apple cider vinegar, and people use it for really for weight loss and appetite suppression, and there's a little bit of evidence that it might help with that. And it's probably not because it's apple cider vinegar, but because it has acetic acid, it's vinegar, like any vinegar. If you're going to take it first, don't take it as a supplement. We've tested supplements with apple cider vinegar. They either have nothing in them, or they have so much that there have been cases where people get, sometimes capsules get stuck in people's throats. When that happens with something that's acidic, it can actually burn your esophagus. And there've been some serious cases where that's happened, even with an apple cider vinegar supplement. So stay away from the supplements. And if you're going to do it, take apple cider vinegar. You add it to warm water and swallow it quickly. Don't let it sit around in your mouth where it's going to hurt the enamel on your teeth. So it's not going to help you with COVID, but if you want to try apple cider vinegar, that's the way to do it. And review. <laughs> yeah,
0: Right. And you've got a review of those products, which is also very helpful. Dr. Cooperman, we're out of time, but I want to give you just a minute to leave our listeners with any message.
1: The biggest problem people run into with supplements is either they, they overtrust them and sometimes they overdo it. So be sure you understand what these things can or can't do. And even if you get excited about one thing that a supplement might do, That doesn't mean you should be taking it in excess. Even with, say, with the dark chocolates, use moderation, especially if you don't know the levels of lead or cadmium in them. So, you know, as always, moderation is good to apply when you're dealing with supplements and and healthy foods.
0: Exactly. We've got to close because we're out of time, but I want to remind our listeners and thank them for joining us. Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Todd Cooperman, President, Founder, and Editor-in-Chief at ConsumerLab.com. I will provide a link so people can go to your website. Some of the information is free. You've got short videos that are very helpful summarizing your exhaustive reports And then, if people want to subscribe to your site, they can do that from your website also. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Cooperman.
1: My pleasure, Melinda. Thank you.